I do appreciate the opportunity. And again, I thank you all for your prayers. Um, you can tell my voice is getting a little bit better. Uh, you may have noticed I grabbed a coffee because sometimes in the hot weather, warm fluids loosen my throat. Um, I have a big jug of cold water there, but uh, the hot water sometimes it, it helps me. So if you see me sipping, you know it's getting a little bit uh, um, tight. So again, um, let me open with a word of prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, Lord, how gracious and merciful you are to us, Lord. And we just thank you that as your adopted children, we can come together, Lord, and fellowship and look deep into your word and and grow in our understanding of you and mature in Christ, Lord. And we just thank you for that opportunity. As I speak today, Lord, I just ask that you guide my words, that the words that I would say would only be those that you would have, that I would be just your channel, Lord. And I'd ask that you give ears to hear and hearts that are softer, that this might touch those that need to hear this word. And we ask this in your son's most precious name. Amen. <clears throat> Today I want to share with you an important aspect of our Christian walk that I'm confident will supplement Pastor Truman's um, series that he's been covering on Corinthians. Excuse me, Colossians. Uh, to begin, I want to share with you some information on the setting of the Colossian church at the time Paul wrote the letter to the church. To truly appreciate the depth of Paul's letter to the Colossians, such an understanding is really quite insightful. Likewise, we'll see that the Colossian culture and its church are very similar to the American culture and church. And that's why I'm really excited that Brother Truman is covering Colossians because Colossians really is a, a wonderful book for today. It really mimics a lot of what we see in our world today. So I'm really, really thankful that he is doing that. Once I cover that, this introduction will then serve as my jumping off point for our message relative to our walk as a Christian in the world today. We're going we're to see that the history of, of Colossae, which is where the Colossian church was, had created an environment in which these relatively new Colossian believers were facing the residuals of their former lives, and that was entering into their worship of Christ. This was causing confusion, and more importantly, a lack of assurance of their salvation. <clears throat> I want you to see the... Well, the picture I showed up before, just so you know, that's what Colossae looks like today. It's no longer there. Completely gone. So let me give you a little of the background, because I think it helps you understand the book of Colossians really, really well. Colossians was part of what was called the Fijian, the Fijia Tri-Cities, which was Heropolis, Laodicea, which we all know from Revelation, and Colossae. Um, it's interesting, when we talk about Laodicea, it talks about the lukewarm. Heropolis had hot springs. It was sort of like a tourist area, but the water was terrible to drink. Where Colossae was ice-cold, beautiful water, and it came together there in Laodicea, which became lukewarm and very much tasteful. So, very interesting topography there. But Colossae itself was on the Lycus River, but it was surrounded by mountains. It was also, though, had very, very fertile land 
And I've already told you about the cold water and the uh, fact that there was a lot of good, rich resources there. If you look at the, uh, the map, that's a little hard to see, but it's the one on the left with the red lines. It actually historically had been at the crossroad of two main roads from, uh, in the area which would bring folks from the, all the way from the Mesopotamia and, the, uh, and the, where Babylon was all the way over to Ephesus. And a north-south there in that area of the Turkey, which we call Turkey today. So it was a main crossroad at one time. However, several hundred and some years earlier, they had the ruling people, uh, empire there decided that kind of takes it out of the way because they'd have to come down, they'd go back, and then this way. So they cut it straight from near Heropolis directly into Laodicea. And Colossae was a waning culture. It had been a center. It had been a very powerful, prominent. And at the time Paul wrote, that city was starting to become less and less. <clears throat> However, it was a very populous uh, area. And uh, there was a lot of different cultures there because many times there was a lot of... Uh, that city had been conquered many, many times from... The Syrians, the Medes, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans now. And every time they came, they would bring some of their people who would stay. You also have from the trades, you had people from the Far East coming and staying. They had a lot of different ethnic groups there, and they would all bring their religious beliefs and their gods with them. Um, the... They had lots of earthquakes there. And the earthquakes, they would always attribute to one of these gods from one of these people groups were angry and were punishing them. <clears throat> so the population there of the folks in the church was mainly Gentile. However, about 200 years earlier, or excuse me, two centuries earlier, a uh, a large Jewish population was brought into that city. And uh, it was done by Antichus the Great. He relocated them and made them come there. So there was a very strong Jewish population there. Heavy Greek influences, as Truman's been telling us about Gnosticism. Technically, Gnosticism hadn't developed as a full-blown philosophy, but all the elements of what they call pre-Gnosticism, was in place in this city. There were Oriental and Mid-Eastern uh, religions there and their influences. They people all believed in curses and uh, all sorts of sort of uh, behaviors that were inappropriate. But the culture was known for its tolerance of other religions. What does that sound familiar about the United States? Tolerance, right? We're tolerant for everybody but the Christians, right? Well, guess what? The same thing was in Colossae. And the people there, this was one of the Roman historians, said that these are the most nervous and unsure people in the world. And you can imagine why, can't you? You had all these different conquerors come in, and they'd set up their god, and they would rule and whatnot, and they were very afraid that whatever they did, they might offend one of these 
these gods in the area. So they were very, very nervous about that. It's interesting, at one time, the city, there was a flood after the earth started to flood, and it changed direction, and the city believes that the angel Mark, the archangel Michael came and pushed the water away from the city. I mean, they, they had all sorts of beliefs that were very, very different. The church in Colossae, though, you know, and Amon's, or, 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 Truman's covered this very, very well. Um, it's not known. Um, we already talked, it was ethnically mixed, although it was mainly Jewish people. There was a real strong core, though, of followers of Jesus. But the church externally was having a lot of pressure to accept and not offend the other groups with their message. Sounds familiar? Um, there was the belief there that there are many ways to God. And you should not um, try to tell somebody it's exclusive. Sounds familiar again, doesn't it? Um, and it, also the folks were very, very worried, again, that they might offend one of the many gods that could be out there and it would bring terror upon the city. That's bad enough, but now some of those influences were starting to enter the church. And people were starting to think, well, that makes a little sense. We'll add that to our thing. But literally, um, there was a heresy that was starting to seep into the church. And I don't want to steal Truman's thunder on this, but this is basically the heresy that was in there. Three, three main things. They were starting to deny the humanity of Christ. And that had to do with the Gnostics and the others. What they would say that, since matter is evil, Jesus couldn't really be a, you know, uh, uh, a, a, a person. He had to have been sort of an emanation, which they meant like an angel um, uh, that descended from God, because God would never put his son in evil matter. They also denied the deity of Christ, because they started, others were saying, no, he was really an angel all along, right? He's not really, a, a, you know, a God. Only partially divine. But ultimately, they were denying, and, and, and I know Truman has been really talking about this, denying about the sufficiency of Christ for the folks. Hopefully, I'm going to transition now. Hopefully, as I go forward, you'll see that the Church of Colossae was actually very, very similar facing things that we see today in our world. They were really struggling with the fact of who is Jesus. This, this threat, this heresy, created confusion and caused those Colossian people to doubt their salvation. They questioned if it was really Christ alone. Did they have to add something to it? Before we critique the Colossians, let me ask you a simple question. Can a believer have doubts about their faith? Is it okay to have doubts about your faith? I'm sure we've all heard folks say, absolutely, thou shalt not, right? If you're truly saved, you'll never doubt your faith, right? Well, I'm going to say this to you. Everyone has doubts. It isn't just unique to Christians. Every Christian has had doubts at some point in their Christian life. We're all infinite creatures living in a confused world. We don't know everything. 
Sometimes we misunderstand and get things wrong, and this confusion can possibly cause us to doubt our beliefs. To understand this better, I want us to look at a man that Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Let's read this. Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. Now when Jesus heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent the word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As John the Baptist sat in prison for his faithfulness to God, He was afflicted with doubts about Jesus. In fact, John sends word to Jesus by his disciples, right? He says, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Let's remember, this is the same John who at one time leaped at his mother's womb at the sound of Mary's voice. This is the same John who confidently declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the same John who baptized Jesus and heard the voice from heaven say, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. But now, John is sitting in a Roman prison, probably waiting for his execution, and he's wondering, Did I get it all wrong? So John began to doubt. Do you appreciate why he began to doubt? I expect he expected to see and possibly participate in the Messiah's kingdom while he was alive. He didn't quite probably understand the difference between the first coming and the second coming. But what's even more interesting is, is let's look how Jesus replied. Jesus actually replied using Old Testament Scripture. If you read Isaiah 28, 18 through 19, it says, And in that day, and it's talking about when the the Anointed One, the Messiah, would come, In that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek shall also increase in their joy, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 10, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart. A heart is a, a, a small deer. And the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out the streams of desert. Now verses 7 through 9 talk about the the, uh, uh, landscape, but it's really talking about heaven. And it goes to verse 10, and it says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. If John the Baptist can have doubts, folks, and is it any wonder why we can have doubts on occasion? 
Now, the question isn't really, can Christians have doubts? But rather, what should we do when doubts come? Doubts can actually be a good thing. They can cause us to look more closely at what we believe and why we believe it. For example, a Christian who's going through a period of suffering may not feel God's presence in his or her life and may have some doubts about God's existence. This forces that person to reflect on how he or she knows God is real. He or she must ascertain whether their belief in God is based upon emotions or upon the evidence we find in Scripture. Things about God's immediate presence. Those bedrock convictions in times of doubt. This is because those convictions are based on firm scriptural evidence, not fickle emotions. So what should we do when we face doubts? Well, there are three practical takeaways for every Christian from this exchange between Jesus and John the Baptist. First, raise your doubts. Don't suppress them. Express them. Doubts that are left ignored and unanswered could drive you to despair. Instead, follow the example of John the Baptist and articulate your doubts. You know, sometimes we can be ashamed to admit we have doubts, especially if we're in positions of leadership. We don't want people to think, oh, you know, why, why, why are they thinking that? You know, they must not be a, a believer. But take heart, if the prophet John the Baptist can raise doubts to Jesus, so can you. Seek while you have your doubts. Challenge your doubts. Why am I doubting? What is the cause of my doubts? Is it based on an intellectual or emotional conflict? Usually you will find it's tied into the fact of the lack of time in prayer and Bible study. You've all seen that poem, Footprints. It talks about, hey, why was there only one set of prints, right? That's when Christ was carrying us. But someone also says, well, maybe we walked off. Lastly, seek insight and guidance from the sources of truth. Look at John's example, right? Jesus gave scriptural reference in Isaiah to show him that he truly was the Savior. Also, he pointed to the fact, John, what did you personally see? And then he discussed it. He went to get counsel, and he went and sent his folks to talk to Jesus. <clears throat> Let's dig a little deeper. Can a true believer have doubts about their salvation? Maybe the single most pressing issue facing new or young believers in today's culture, as well as those approaching death. We need to recognize that Satan has two main operational focuses in this worldly culture in which we live. One, to keep people from Christ. And then, secondly, to diminish their ability to be effective and to share the message of Christ. Why would Satan want to give a believer doubts? He wants to diminish their effectiveness. Our current worldly culture emphasizes feelings and emotions, self-centeredness or humanism, multiculturalism, many ways to God, Relativism, there is no real truth. You can make truth whatever you want it to be. 
materialism, there is no supernatural, all of that is antagonistic to Christianity and all have the potential to create confusion in the mind of a believer. So let's look at a few reasons why believers may doubt their salvation. Some people may doubt the correctness of the method of salvation. I actually heard a minister tell somebody you aren't saved because you didn't get baptized yet. And he cited Acts 2.23. They may doubt the genuineness of their salvation experience and wonder if they really came to the Lord. I, I would tell you, as a youngster, I really struggled with the fact that my grandfather used to make me listen to Unshackled. I don't know if you all know what that is out of Chicago. And it was always these drug addicts, these alcoholics, gangsters, murderers who came to Christ, or these really terrible people, right? And I thought, well, geez, I was just this young kid alongside my bed with my mother. Was that really a salvation experience? Or do I need to have some tremendous opportunity like that? They may be looking at their inward emotional experience. People know their own feelings and begin to doubt their faithfulness to God. I've had people, you know, young folks say, you know, was it really I trusted Christ when I was young or was it I was just trying to please my mom and dad? Right? They may have really made that choice, but they start to doubt it because of that. Or they're confused by their life after salvation. People get saved and some people then go off and have become sinful. Right? And they say, well, geez, was I really saved? Um, I believe the underlying cause for all these reasons is due to the lack of a biblical knowledge and understanding leading to a misunderstanding of an important doctrine. The lack of understanding of who Christ is, what he has done for us, and that he is fully sufficient for my salvation in life can only lead to confusion and a lack of peace resulting from doubt. Let me share a quote from C.H. McIntosh. He's a 19th century theologian. He said this, The unsettled state of so many of God's dear people is the result of not having received into their hearts a full Christ as God's own very provision for them. No doubt this sad and painful result may may be brought about by various contributing causes as a legalistic mind, a morbid conscience, a self-occupied heart, bad teaching, a secret hankering after the present world, and some reserve in the heart as to the claims of God, of Christ, and of eternity. Whatever may be producing cause, we believe it will be found in almost every case that the lack of a settled peace so common among the Lord's people is the result of not seeing, not believing, what God has made his Christ to be to them and for them that and for them forever. So this leads to our key topic for day, the doctrine of eternal security. So what is that doctrine? Well, you've heard it probably expressed as one saved, always saved, or uh, in a Calvinistic perspective, that is perseverance of the saints. I have to tell you, both of those expressions have issues with them. Because when you talk about once saved, always saved, some people take that to be that I could just make a verbal sort of, uh, yeah, I believe, and then they can go live however they want. But because they said that, or they repeated that little prayer, they're truly saved when it really wasn't in their heart. 
And we know that the Bible teaches that if you're truly saved, you're going to, people are going to start to become more and more Christ-like and sanctified. Perseverance of the saints actually, the Calvin's definition is fine, but what it's become is that people start to think that they themselves keep themselves preserved until the time when they die in, in a faith at that moment. Versus the fact they, 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 they don't recognize that it's only God's power and that's God who is preserving them and holding them secure. So sometimes it creates confusion. And I would tell you that there are certain denominations that take it the way I described it, that they think that you're the one who keeps you there and saved. Although those titles all, or those, I'll say, phrases, they all attribute an attribute of what Christ does for us as a result of saving us, for which we should all be eternally grateful. It has nothing to do with what man does. Yes, we are saved once for all eternity, and it is solely due to the work and the power of God, not man. I believe in this doctrine, and it's an article of state. It is an article of the Statement of Faith for New Life Baptist Church. I don't know if you guys can read it with the print there, but I'll read it to you. It says, We believe that all redeemed, once saved, are kept by God's power and thus secure in Christ forever. We believe it's a privilege of the believers to rejoice in the assurance of their salvation through the testimony of God's Word, which, however, clearly forbids the use of Christian liberty as an occasion to the flesh. I really like the word dig here with regard to that. I also like the fact that the title in the statement of faith there is the eternal security and assurance of believers. Um, <clears throat> I really like the terminology best, the assurance of believers, because assurance gives you the idea that there's something else holding. As I said, I like that terminology. I'm going to use it throughout the rest of this presentation. But before I read a few paragraphs of John MacArthur's um, devotional called Strength for Today on the Assurance of Salvation, I want to just share this with you as I, let me put it this way, as I read this, these paragraphs. A sad fact of contemporary Christianity is that many in the church greatly misunderstand what the Bible teaches about the assurance of one's salvation. As a result, many genuine believers struggle with doubts about the reality of their salvation, while many professing believers are confident that they're saved, when in truth they are headed for hell. Such misunderstanding is unnecessary since Scripture makes it abundantly clear that believers should not only enjoy assurance of their salvation, but should cultivate it. Because a clear understanding of one's salvation is so vital, Scripture encourages true believers with the promise of full assurance while making false professors uncomfortable by seeking to destroy their false sense of security. A true believer's sense of assurance should not ebb and flow with their emotions. It's meant to be an anchor even in the midst of storm, but a false professor does not have that assurance. So let's begin. Let me give you a little bit of a background with regards to, to the history, but also uh, some interest. And I also got this from John MacArthur. 
Assurance of salvation has been a key issue throughout the history of the church, especially the Reformers' reaction to the Roman Catholics' assertion that since salvation is a joint effort between man and God, the outcome is in doubt until the end. John Calvin, the leading 16th century reformer, taught that believers can and should be assured of their salvation. He made the ground for assurance objective, which is important, urging believers to look to the promises of, in God's word to gain a sense of personal assurance. Later Reformed theologians, and that included the Puritans, recognized that genuine Christians often lacked assurance. So they emphasized the need for to emphasize subjective means of establishing assurance, counseling the people to examine their attitudes and actions for evidence of election. So, the question might be asked, well, should I then derive my assurance through objective promises in God's Word, or is it through my self-examination? <clears throat> the Bible teaches that both lead to assurance. The objective basis for salvation is the finished work of Christ on the cross that's included in the promises of Scripture. The subjective support is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians, including his convicting and sanctifying ministries. Romans 15.4 says this, For who, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, objective, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might enjoy hope. The subjective of that. And the Holy Spirit applies both grounds of assurance to the believer. To understand the difference of what the, the two groups are making, the objective would be the question, do I believe? And the subjective is, I believe it, but is my faith real? So, <clears throat> Now we're going to look at the evidence in the Bible for the assurance of our salvation. First, we're going to look at those objective passages that directly address our assurance, and then a few indirect, and finally I'll provide an overview of the subjective evidence of salvation. Throughout the Bible, there are numerous passages that, will direct the, that are both direct as well as indirect supporting this important doctrine. So let's begin looking at the verses that were in our statement of faith. 1 Peter, verses 3 through 5 are what I'm going to look at. The statement of faith goes all the way to 8, but I think the meat is here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and fadeth not away, reserved in heaven, who are kept by the word, excuse me, kept by the power of God, the faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I want to encourage you all, before I get into this, as you're doing your Bible study, if you've got access, internet access, there, there, there is a site out there called the Blue Letter Bible. Really exciting about that is, is when you can look up any verse and then look on every single word and find out what the meaning was in the original language and what it means in the verse that you're reading. How the structure of the sentence and the context 
and opens your eyes because sometimes our English language doesn't necessarily explain things as well as once you see how it went back in the original languages. Let me show you why. Hath begotten, right? Um, it means it's already in the past tense, but the word actually means it's a done deal and completed, right? Uh, all that follows is already done, all right? And all that was before that, as we read that, is no longer. The lively hope, the word there for hope is assured confidence. It means a confident optimism. It means certainly as if it's already been done. Not that we use the word hope like, oh, you know, I hope my son gets married soon or something, right? No, it's, it's something we know is actually as if it's done. The living hope is our salvation in heaven referred to. What's interesting is, is um, <coughs> the words that are described for the inheritance, when inheritance is that which one is to receive or one that was appropriate to one, it means incorruptible means it's imperishable. It's not subject to passing away or decay. It's death proof. It's undefiled. The word means unpolluted, unstained by evil, not to be diminished or changed in any way, but to remain perfect. Fadeth not away means it does not wither, it does not decay, there can be no variation, and it's eternally the same. Those are tremendous words to tell us that our salvation is secure. It's not going to be corrupted. It's not going to be defiled. It's not going to fade away. The word reserved means that it's been taken, it's been secured for another and held safe until a later date. Wow. And it's telling us who's, who is the one who is, is securing it for us. Right? It's Christ. The word kept there who are kept by the power, is actually the word guarded. So in essence, your salvation right now, because that's in the present tense where the other was the past tense, that, that your salvation is being guarded by God. Is there anything more powerful than God that could t- take that away? Absolutely not. Let's continue in John because eternal security is a constant theme in the Gospel of John. First, what is John 5, 24? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is path from death to life. Again, the word hath, it's past tense. It means it already is possessed. It's a complete action. Excuse me, it's the present tense. Sorry about that. Shall not, the word actually means excludes any possibility. So there's no possibility for any future judgment or condemnation. His past means it's already occurred. <clears throat> if on 10, 27, 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 
My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father. I love this verse because I, have a, I had a, a, a Methodist friend, not making judgment on the Methodists, but he would tell me that, well, yes, nobody else, no other man can pull, pluck me from God's hand, but I can jump out. Right? And, and, and he, you know, that's the way he taught. But there is no stronger passage in the Bible, according to MacArthur, for the eternal security of, of, for the believer. The word shall never perish is an emphatic Greek structure, verbiage structure. And it means absolute. There can be no exceptions. <clears throat> if exceptions exist or ex- possible, that Christ's words are unreliable, untrustworthy, and we know that's not the case. When it talks about neither shall any man or no man, it doesn't say nobody but you can do this, right? It says no man. The believer is included that, right? When it talks about my salvation, it says no man. I'm a man. I can't undo my salvation, right? If you're saved, there's no one who can, can cause you to lose, you know, convince you to lose it, nor can you choose not to be saved. And the word pluck out is an interesting word because it means to snatch away or to remove from one's already established place, and it's as if it's being taken to a place it does not belong, right? You know, we think of the word pluck like you pluck feathers out of a chicken, right? But that's actually not a bad example because those feathers don't belong on the ground. They belong in the chicken, right? And that's what it means there when it says pluck. It means to take something from where it is and it's supposed to be and place it someplace else. Look at John six thirty seven through 40. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, and all that of all which he hath given me I shall, not, I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That word all, right, talks about all, right? It's not all and, well, hopefully all. It's all. It's a definitive, right? They will all come. In other words, the ones that are, are, have been called by the Lord, there's no possibility that they're not going to come. It's interesting that it talks about giveth, right? And then down below it says hath giveth. That's actually in the past tense. It's already happened. It's not something in the future. It's something that's already happened, right? The word cometh is interesting because the original word means it's a definitive, but it means that somebody definitively becomes a follower after someone. Um, I thought that was really... Uh, this is, when you read that, you may not pull that out with regards to that. Well, in no way cast out, the word there actually means to remove or to expel. <clears throat> Lose nothing, there's no exceptions, right? 
all of these. I will raise is actually a definitive. It means that it will happen. It's not that it's something that is wishful. The way it was in the original language, it's as if it is absolutely sure. Let's look at Romans. <clears throat> Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Did you notice what tense all of those are written in? Past tense. It's already happened for the believer. It's not something that's going to happen. It's something that for the believer has already happened. <clears throat> Romans 8, 38, 39. For I am so persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> ah. Excuse me. Shall be able is actually in the future tense. So it's saying in the future, you're saved now, it's past tense, but in the future, there's nothing that can impact your salvation. And it's interesting, the, the list he has there, when it talks about principalities, that actually is a reference to the fallen angels and demons. And when he talks about height and depth, there's actually two different interpretations I've got from the commentators. One is the one that I've probably heard the majority of my life. That means everything in the universe, every you know, direction in the universe. However, that was an expression uh, at the time, a metaphorical expression uh, that was used because the actual words are astronomical terms for a star's path. And it meant the apex and the nadar. So when you see a star at night as the earth moves and the star, you know, through the, around the sun, it's a, stars seem to move. Sometimes they're higher in the sky and sometimes lower in the sky. So that became a metaphor for people's life with the Jewish culture. And what it meant was the high points of your life and the low points. And I kind of like the second interpretation because it quite tells us that, you know, sometimes when we're riding high, we can forget about God, right? We're thinking about ourselves. And sometimes maybe we're so low, we've gotten into so much sin, you know, people would think, oh, well, I'm going to, you know, God's not going to ever forgive me. But what it's really saying is, is despite all of that, whatever, wherever you are in your life, whether you're on the highs and the lows, your salvation is secure. Any other creature, again, all-encompassing. It's not some creatures. Uh, it's not all, only unbelievers. It's all, which includes us, right? We can't, we can't, as my friends say, jump out of God's hand. <clears throat> 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, present tense. Um, no condemnation. If so somebody saved, there can be no condemnation, past, present, or future. Very, very secure. A couple other, I'll go quickly because I know I'm getting a little bit longer. Um, Philippians 1.7, being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work, and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The word will perform means it's accomplished. It's been perfected. It is executed. It is complete. 
very interesting. He will complete. He will execute. He will perfect us. Psalm 23.6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. House there is a permanent dwelling, and the word dwell means to dwell in something permanent. So when we think about our salvation, right, it's we're dwelling in something that's permanent, right? First Corinthians and Jude, let's read First Corinthians one, six through eight. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you into the end, right? The word confirm is an interesting word because it means to make firm, establish, it has a sense of something being put permanently so it cannot be moved. Shall confirm you into the end that ye may be blameless in the day of the Lord. Jude 24, 27. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God and our Savior, be glory, majesty, and dominion, and power, both now and forever. Right? The word there to keep, again, is the word cower, power. Since there's no power stronger than God, we don't have to work. And the word present there means cause or to make stand in place. as the sense of when you put something in concrete and you set it so that it's not going to move. <clears throat> wow. Some indirect ones, for time purposes, I'm not going to go through these, but if anybody wants this, I could give it to you. You can look these up. But you've got John 17, 11, John 14, 16, Hebrews 7, 25, and 2 Thessalonians 3, 22. Let's move over to the subjective side of this. Now let's look at the practical or experiential side of this key doctrine. 2 Peter 1.10 says, Wherefore... The rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. Peter is encouraging believers to self-examine their salvation. Only by testing one's assurance of God's word can anyone know for sure if he is saved. A clear understanding of one's salvation is so vital. Let's look at seven subjective elements of assurance for us to self-examine our walk and then we will look at 1 John's tests of insurance. <clears throat> Seven subjective elements. This, are, you, are these present in your life? And again, don't look at it and say, oh my gosh, that one's not there, I'm not saved. What it's saying is these are seven different elements that would, uh, show, should validate to your salvation. True believers will see the glory of Christ reflected in their lives. A peace with God which securely binds the true believer to Jesus Christ. Recognition and dependence on the fact that God's grace and not our faith has the power to save us and stand firm in that salvation. Rejoicing in the future hope of glory as the ultimate destination of all true believers. An everlasting love relationship with God. The settled recognition as adopted children of God and no longer as enemies, we will not face the wrath of God. Possessing abundant joy, both in our salvation and ultimately who God is. But there's also 
in First John sort of a test for us with regards to it. And you can ask yourself, am I enjoying communion with God and Jesus Christ? Am I sensitive to sin and confessing it? Am I obedient to God's commands? Do I possess a genuine love for God and rejection of worldliness? Am I longing for the return of Jesus Christ? Am I demonstrating a decreasing pattern of sin in my life? Am I experiencing increasing love for other Christians? Am I receiving answers to my prayers? Experiencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life? Am I able to discern false doctrines? And have I been rejected by the world but accepted by God? I've got handouts down below of those last two slides that I would, you know, if you're interested, you can take those home. I know a couple of you may have. Um, but... And use them. I mean, just look through those and, and you know, contemplate on them and pray about that. You know, how can I maybe be look at these and maybe even make them stronger in my life? And if you're somebody struggling with their salvation, it may help you move to the position of where you would want to make uh, become a, a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll go. Th- I'm gonna this for you. We have a guarantee or a seal, okay? And throughout the Bible, there are passages that pledge and guarantee the assurance of a salvation of the, of the salvation of the believer. God has given us a seal that's his Holy Spirit as his earnest to keep us for all eternity. You have to recognize when this, a seal represents the desired action authorized by the power of a higher authority and cannot be removed nor its intended action be changed by anyone but that higher authority. It symbolizes to others the authority and the ownership of that which has been sealed. So what does it mean to be sealed by the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a couple verses we can look at. 2 Corinthians 1, 20-22, For all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him amen unto the glory of God by us, now which he has established us with, with you in Christ, and hath appointed us is God. He hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. What he's saying is, is if I've given you my guarantee. This is the earnest. If you bought a house, you have to put earnest money down, your guarantee of intent. He's put that Holy Spirit in our hearts as that guarantee and earnest for us that we should know if we're saved. Ephesians 1, 13-14, In whom you also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also believed, and ye were sealed, now we're talking about the process, with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. <clears throat> Yeah, we already talked about earnest is a guarantee, and the word inheritance has the meaning of that to which one has been granted or entitled to. <clears throat> There's a few more here that I'll share with you, Ephesians 4.30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. Ephesians 1.13, in whom ye also trusted after ye heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed ye were sealed with that, with that Holy Spirit of promise. Then we have 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stand the shore, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Very interesting. It talks about the foundation. Um, that foundation, the word, actually means first principles or God's promises and God's truth in his word. So it says, nevertheless, the foundation... Nevertheless, God's promises and His truth right, standeth sure that they will never be, never be, never be changed. <clears throat> Let me give you a quick summary. I don't know if you can read that. Um, on eternal security or the assurance of the believer. We are kept or eternally secure by God's power, not our own. No one or anything can snatch or pluck us from God's security. Believers in Christ never face eternal judgment. All believers will come to God, all believers will come to God and will never be cast out by God. And believers have been sealed by the Holy Spirit as an inheritance guarantee. <clears throat> so, you might be sitting there saying, but what about those other difficult passages that are used to deny the believer's assurance of salvation? That's for another, another uh, Sunday. Um, uh, in fact, my next time I may follow up with that with you all. Um, but if you're struggling with this, I mean, feel free to call me or some of the other men here that are, you know, and they may be able to, guide you and help you feel, you know, assurance. And if it's the case that you don't know the Lord, they'd be more than happy to hear God's word with you to help you to come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to leave it there. Um, thank you for that. No, that was a little long. I threw in a lot of verses at you and uh, appreciate your attentiveness. But let me, let me close this with a word here. Our God and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you truly are 